Welcome to VR Hermits, a podcast about virtual reality development. I'm Dave Ramsey. And I'm Joe Simpson. Let's get started. So we're back with another VR Hermits. We missed last week because of some reasons, but we're back on track this week. What's going on with you, Dave? Uh, I've been doing some more tutorial stuff and working my way through that Ray Wender like Unity book. Okay. Um, having a lot of fun. Finally get to write some code. Yeah. Which was good. Where are, where are you in that, uh, in that book? Um, I'm, let me double check. I think I'm at the end of chapter four. Okay. So my little space Marine is running around and firing bullets and rotating to wherever the mouse is pointing. And, uh, bullets are colliding with things and being destroyed when they hit walls or critters or barriers or go off screen and that kind of stuff. So I'm not creating infinite numbers of bullets. Um, though I am still creating them when I need them and deleting them when they disappear rather than using some kind of pool. Yeah. That's sweet. So... Um, what are your thoughts so far? Like, um, what have you learned? What stuck out to you? Yeah, I, I've been really impressed with what can be accomplished with, you know, about two dozen lines of code. Mm-hmm. Um, they provided us a lot of graphics and the graphics make it look a lot better than the amount of effort that I have put in. Yeah. But still making all of these things happen with a couple of checkboxes picking from a couple of lists and about two dozen lines of code. There's a lot going on at this point and I'm finding that pretty impressive. Um, it's weird. There's a mental translation that keeps happening because I've worked with things like Sprite kit or Cocos 2d, which are some kind of lower level code based game engines. And as we're doing things in the UI, like, oh, making a empty node to, or I'm sorry, an, an, a uh, game object, an empty game object to function as a wrapper for a series of other ones so they can kind of all move together and things like that. I'm like, oh, yeah, so this is a node and these are the child nodes. And I'm, I'm, I keep kind of looking through the top level mm-hmm. down to the level below. Or what I'm actually doing is I'm translating in my head between old concepts and new concepts. And on some levels, I think this is probably helpful. And on other levels, I'm sure that I'm just making this harder for myself. (laughs) Um, Yeah, Yeah. like, like, like I'm used to, oh, I'll instantiate this object and then I will set a couple of properties on the object. And I'm just used to in my head thinking of that as a code thing. Yeah. And finding the checkboxes is one kind of challenge. Finding the appropriate named property in some sort of documentation is a different challenge. And getting my head to see those as equivalent challenges or effectively no different is a little weird. Um, yeah, one, one thing that I've noticed about a lot of the code examples in the books and tutorials I've done so far is they kind of assume that people like you and I don't exist in that the one man shop 
one person writing the code and doing the level design and the 3D assets, that doesn't exist. They kind of assume the person writing the code is writing it and exposing things in such a way that the level designer is then going to go use it. So you need to write it in such a way that you can expose the properties that they need, but not the properties that they don't need. And so it's almost like the developer is just writing code that helps the level designer at that point, rather than, you know, I'm just doing everything myself. I don't need to communicate or not communicate certain things to the other version of me through which parameters I expose. Um, yeah, that is going to be a, a challenging thing for me because I can also see that there are spots where I should be exposing properties in that way so that they can be controlled through the interface. Mm-hmm. That either because I need them to be able to draw the appropriate connections in the code or because I'm not going to want to keep dropping down into the code to change some constant. I'm going to want to be able to do that in the UI. And the environments that I have experience with either completely don't support this or support this very, very minimally. Like there's limited support for doing this in uh, UI kit and things like that when you're doing Swift programming. Um, but that's those are more recent additions. For the most part, there's very little support for that there. FileMaker has basically no support whatsoever for anything yeah. like that. Um, and so that is, I think a spot where I'm going to have a little bit of difficulty because I'm used to just, Oh, I need a constant. Okay. Just make a constant mm-hmm. set it to 50 go. It's like, yes, but let's also make sure that this is a public thing. Simultaneously, if I can think about it the right way, thinking about those constants in that manner will also tell me where I need to be putting them. Yeah. It's like, you can also, I don't think you've gotten to the point yet where they talk about serialized fields versus public and private, but by default, Unity will make anything that you make public, it'll throw in the inspector. But if you don't want certain properties to be public, you still want them to be private or protected, you can use a little square bracket serialized field tag above the line of code for the variable to still expose it in the inspector, but not expose it to other classes in C Sharp. There's a whole bunch of information on that in the appendix for that book, which is probably worth a good read before you go too far. Oh, gotcha. So that's, it has the unity behavior of public without giving all the other classes access to it as a standard public variable. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Well, I should be using that most of the time. Most, most of the time. So one of the things that I think is, particularly remarkable about unity is there's kind of only two major design patterns with the way unity works which is game object and child game objects hierarchical relationship between one or more objects or two or more objects and the component system everything is one of those two things essentially and then you know a complex game object like an enemy character would have a parent game object and then several potentially several mesh child objects and you know those might have a collider or the parent object might have a collider or they might have different physics properties or you know dozens potentially dozens of different components attached and you may have scripts attached at multiple levels in that the thing that's really neat is when you're 
say you're writing a bit of code that needs to take a specific component from a specific game object type as a property or as a parameter for your script, you write that in code, expose it to the inspector, and then you just go grab that entire game object in, and Unity kind of figures out which what you need based on the type system. Right. Um, <clears throat> you'll end up doing that a lot through the course of that book. I guess, spoiler warning, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> no spoilers. Yeah, no spoilers. But yeah, it's just once you... And I think that book is particularly useful because it makes you do the same things multiple times, but to achieve different results. And you realize there's really just two huge concepts that I'm I'm learning here that I'm going to use a ton. And probably 80% of the stuff you do in Unity is making game objects and attaching components to them and then writing scripts and attaching those as components to things. I, I'm still early, but I may almost want to add in a th- Third, which is all the stuff that happens in project settings. Yeah. I'm finding that I keep jumping in there to do weird stuff, and I don't fully have a grasp on everything that's going on there. I'm doing a little bit with physics so far, but there were some things that I had to access through there to be able to get the inspector to come up, which was a little odd, but... Hmm. Weird. <clears throat> Maybe there's another place I should be going. The tutorial was walking me through using the edit menu to get to project settings. And I'm not saying they shouldn't be project settings. I'm just wondering if there's really another place that it should, that I should be going to get those. Mm-hmm. Um, things like, for example, which layers collide. Yeah. Well, those, those are, those things all show up in the same portion of the UI as the inspector, mm-hmm. but they're, they could be better thought of if you drag them into the main window as like, this is a, a, I'm not modifying the properties of the game. I'm modifying or the properties of any specific thing in the game. I'm modifying how physics are going to work in this game. So it's almost helpful to drag those things into the same series of tabs where you have the game scene, the scene view and the game view. So they kind of think of it separately because otherwise they, they feel more like just another attribute. And mm-hmm. It could be, there's so many of them, it's easy to get lost in. I think one of one of the things I don't, I'm not crazy about that there's a specific type of setting. I'm not going to open Unity right now because it'll turn on the fans on my laptop. Um, but there's a, a specific screen of settings that I need to get for the viewer settings that I can only get to by opening the build and run settings then clicking a button there. Like, that's, that's kind of weird. Everything else is in a menu. Why do I have to go through this extra step and open this window to open another window? I have to open a, a, a second window outside of the UI that then opens another tab back in the main UI. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's... I like the fact that they've condensed the interface down into something that that a relatively simple set of views, once you understand what's going on, covers basically all the eventualities, but there's a couple of things that were kind of shoehorned in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it may just be slightly more understandable if they were ever so slightly less shoehorned in. Yeah. Um, One thing, the have you gotten to the point, the point where you can actually make and save different layouts for the 
Unity editor. Uh, they made brief reference to it, and I think we moved like one tab. Okay, so that part's pretty handy. Um, basically, you can just put all the tabs in Windows where you want them, and then save that layout, give it a name, and then kind of create multiple workflows for yourself. Of like, make a project version, make a you know a, a level design version, make a testing version, stuff like that. The only ones I'm using right now are basically the laptop mode versus when I'm using my much larger external display. I've got two different ones that organize the windows slightly differently. Yeah, it's a handy feature. I, I think this is one area where Unreal Engine feels a little bit more advanced with the, the UI of Unreal Engine itself. It seems more modern when you you open the material editor and you're in a totally different workflow working in a different place than the game scene editor. Um, it feels a bit more polished that way from a, I'm a person that's using this program eight to 10 hours a day standpoint. Not, yeah. necessarily, not necessarily talking about the results of those two things, but like actually working in mm-hmm. one or the other, that part feels more advanced. I mean, like an Unreal Engine has a dozen of those which can feel a bit overwhelming, but if you're working on a team of, you know, ten people each doing a different part of the the game, that workflow really makes a lot of sense. Yeah, they really are almost a perfect textbook demonstration of the advantages and disadvantages of a unified interface versus a entirely component independent view style interface. Mm-hmm. Um you know, Unity can kind of squeeze it all in one place, and some things are kind of squeezing around the edges. And Unreal Engine can sculpt a complete interface for one particular task that is optimized for doing that particular thing. Now all you have to do is learn 12 different interfaces. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and and there are advantages and disadvantages to each, and I'm not in a position to tell you which one is better. Some of that's going to be personal preference. Um but, yeah, I mean, where the integrated interface works, I think it works, if that isn't just a tautology. Um, but, yeah, there are some spots where things are just squeezing out around the edges. The clay is coming out between my fingers as I'm trying to mold things around. And that's okay. I've done yeah. enough interface design to know that sometimes you just go, yeah, put the button on the screen. <laughs> it's... <laughs> It's just going to go. So. Um, so, yeah, I, I made some notes about some things that I noticed as I was going along. Um, and. Uh, okay. Yeah, I had to run a Google search to find the key command for playing and stopping my game. I think it's uh, command P. It is. Uh, but it's under the edit menu. Yeah, which I looked at half a dozen things in the edit menu and went, well, this isn't what I'm looking for and moved on to the next thing because it totally shouldn't be under the edit menu. But (laughs) Um, it's funny, I had to actually put my hand on the keyboard to tell you that because I don't I didn't know what it was. I just knew where to put my hand. You knew where it was. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, that's another spot where I, I don't. I haven't sat down and figured out where it should go, but I don't think it goes there. Um, well, it's, there's the little, you know, play button right above the, in the toolbar. There is, but if I can play from a key command, I'd prefer to. Yeah. I'd, I'd prefer to have the option. And I do have the option. That's fantastic. 
I mean, I was ready to find a menu somewhere and have to add a key command to it or something like that. It'd be fantastic if it gave a tooltip when you moused over that thing. But right now, the play button doesn't have a tooltip. Yeah, I don't I don't understand how you do that at this point, you know, 2017 in a modern interface. (laughs) I mouse over the play button and it should at least say play. I don't know. Yeah. Um, One thing that kind of bugs me about that same interface, the play, the play button, the pause button right next to it. Um, and then the the two windows, there's the scene editing view and the game view are, are two different things and it'll switch from one or the other for you, but it's really easy to forget which one you're in. It's really easy to flip to the game view and real and like why can't I grab anything? Why can't I select anything? Like, oh wait, I'm in the wrong one again. Mm. And that's it's only easy because I used Unreal Engine for a couple of weeks, for a couple of months, where there's one window that does both. It just goes into a different mode. Right. Um, I also took the suggestion in the book and made the um, the play mode tint more obvious. Yeah, me too. It's a little garish, but <laughs> I just don't want to miss the fact that I am in play mode. Because even the little bits of playing that I did on previous tutorials this is the kind of thing that I'm going to mess up half a dozen times. And it's the first time I found that there was a way to make it more obvious that I was in play mode. So I took advantage of the opportunity. Um, The other thing I didn't like about that play button is that they don't change the play button to a stop button to stop running the game. It's just a toggle. You unplay. (laughs) (laughs) Like that's from from a design standpoint, that looks like you un you unplay the game. You don't <laughs> stop. Yeah, it's like come on, you, use icons correctly. I yeah, they, they, it breaks the metaphor a little bit. And again, all of this is coming after the hey, I was really impressed with what I can do with this tool. Yeah, definitely. Um, I should also We're, throw in the caveat that Joe and I both cut our teeth in an environment where. We were building a lot of visual interfaces for users on complex data solutions. And so this particular area is something we've spent a lot of time thinking on in the last few years. So we're perhaps a little overly picky on this, but it's still wrong. I mean, wrong is wrong. I'm just thinking of like a a FileMaker layout with a new record button and an un-new record button. Bonus points, Joe. That's that's gorgeous. On <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> you can edit that out or leave it in as you desire later when you hear it again. Mm-hmm. Um, as I was reading through it, they were talking about the things that were happening in the rigid body. Uh, I, I, don't help me. I'm going to try and get the terminology right. The rigid body component inspector. And one of them was apl- the ability to apply a physics material, mm-hmm. which sounded fascinating because in my head, it was just like a normal material. So it was like, oh, OK, so here's the like here, here's a bump map <laughs> that gets applied. And so you can make the surface more bumpy in a physics context even if it's not more bumpy in a visual context and it turns out that's not actually the way that it works um, but it sounded amazing 
my my brain extrapolated an entirely new way of defining physics in a game, and it was apparently a bit much. Yeah. Um, another thing I had to run a Google search for was how to attach the Visual Studio debugger to Unity. Because there's a whole like attach interface in Visual Studio, which you don't use. Mm, okay. You have you done this at all? I don't think so. Okay, so if you want to like put in a breakpoint in your code so you can see when a particular thing is being run, but you're using Visual Studio as your editor, in Visual Studio you press the play button. Okay, just play the code there, but it doesn't do anything in Unity yet. That's the thing that actually attaches. Visual Studio to Unity the process. Then you go into Unity and hit play there, and it will play the game, but if it bumps into one of your breakpoints, it'll stop. Okay. Which is kind of a fine interface, but pressing yeah. play in two different development environments in order to generate one effect feels funky. Yeah, I don't think... So far in dealing with Visual Studio and Unity, I have never built code in Visual Studio. I've always just done it from the Unity side. So you're just typing code in Visual Studio, not even the mono developer or anything? Yep, just typing in Visual Studio, hit save, and the code and the changes get propagated back to Unity, and it's doing some compilation in the background to check it for errors and such. Um, That's not quite the case with Unreal Engine, where you could... You could build the code on the Visual Studio side, but it would check for errors, but it wouldn't. The Visual Studio wasn't really good at dealing with the macros that you use a lot with Unreal Engine. Okay. Um, so a lot of times you would get errors there, which just didn't recognize them. So compiling from Unreal Engine made more sense. But yeah, I haven't yeah, haven't gone through that debugging workflow yet. I'll have to keep that in mind. I mean, I write such perfect code that I doubt I'll ever need it. Obviously, that's not true. Absolutely. Of course, the other advantage that you've got in Unity, particularly if you're just using the play interface, is the ability to say, okay, take this value, shove it into a public property, and it'll actually appear in the inspector. At that time, and that may be enough, but I've still periodically needed to be able to insert a breakpoint and go, what is going on right now? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'll return to one of our previous favorite topics. The uh, You access the axes in the input controller via strings. So each of those axes was named in the interface, and you can assign that name however you want, and to pull a value back out of, or to, to access one of those axes, you access it via key. Mm-hmm. And I simultaneously love the flexibility and dislike the lack of compile time checking. Um... And so I think it's a really good candidate for an enumeration, Joe. <laughs> nice. I mean, once once I've defined the thing, you know, and I know what my axes are going to be, then then I can 
I can create an enumeration that will give me compile time checking for those strings. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Just me. I, I think it's the way to go. Um, well, how much, how much of that, I guess I haven't needed to do much of that in terms of using the inputs because I'm using more of the event system okay. to later on. I mean, I'm just basing that off of what Google has done with the Daydream controller. Um, but there's just a bunch of functions that they expose. And then an event system, which I'm not even going to try to explain because I understand it so poorly at this point. But it's a it's a seri- it's a type of component that you can work with with the input system. Um, so you can you basically attach an event to an object, and that object can check whether or not a, a button is being pushed, something like that. Okay. Yeah, I'll have, I'll say more about that when I understand it better. <laughs> One of those things that even as I was doing it, I wrote down a note on my little list of things to learn, like learn more about the event system, because I don't get it. Um, I've got a little note for myself, speaking of, that the syntax for what I believe is the get component statement Mm -hmm. is one that I'm going to mess up constantly. There's the get component and get components, and there's... Yep, just just get component. Okay, and you it's, can get a component from the the object that the class component is attached to, or from parent objects, or from other sibling objects, or from child objects. Yep. So you literally can get there from here. <laughs> um, but the the actual syntax of the statement is it's get component and then in angle brackets, the type of component that you want to get and then open and close parentheses with basically nothing in it. And my brain wants to put the type of component inside the parentheses, not inside the angle brackets. Now having messed with C sharp enough, I know exactly what it's doing and why it's doing it, but I still type it wrong every single time. Yeah. I, I mean, I still, I've typed enough FileMaker that I want to look for component by name. Mm-hmm. Like get, get component, I want to give the component a name, like give my collider on the subject a name and, and interrogate it that way. But nope, that, mm-hmm. that doesn't happen. Yeah. The, uh, <clears throat> the book made it sound like object pools were a clearly defined thing it was that, that was totally reading between the lines but that like unity would have a object pool object that would handle your queuing and dequeuing of objects mm. um and further reading suggests that this isn't really the case yeah i haven't seen anything like that so far um, they talking kind of like the ui table controller mm-hmm and Swift. And as far as I can tell, there isn't anything in Unity, stock Unity, that does that in the same way that the UI table view row queue works. Yeah. Um, there's, probably, there's probably a script you can buy in the asset store. That we- there are a couple, at least a couple of those um, that I found. I also found a cool tutorial on the Ray Wenderlich site 
that walked you through setting up one and then making a more generic version that could be reused and, and things like that. So it's there, it's available, it's doable. I've always liked the one that's in the UI table view. And I've a couple of times when I was writing for my day job, I wanted something like that, that I could just reference easily, but I was going to have to write my own every time. Um, which I didn't really want to do. <laughs> and I was, I was hoping that there was just going to be a generic one built into unity. Mm-hmm. And it basically what it sounds like is I can get there. It's just not there by default. Yeah. Um, and then the last thing that I had here is I have to give unity bonus points for when you are selecting a color constant. So like color dot yellow or something like that. Mm-hmm. It supports both spellings of gray, either with an A or an E. <laughs> nice. Because by default, I have a tendency to use the E and that fails in almost every environment I've ever worked in. They want you to use the A because most of these environments came out of the U S and they think gray has an A in it. Mm-hmm. And for and for some bizarre reason in my head, I picked up the European spelling and never let go. So the fact that it just supports it smilingly is actually really reassuring to me. You should try to chase that back to where it's coming from and see if they just implemented that twice or if there's one pointing to the other. Uh, the documentation, I think, suggests that it's probably just pointing because even the uh, smart, oh God, but it's the, what's the Visual Studio autocomplete stuff? IntelliSense. IntelliSense. The IntelliSense documentation just says, no, really, this is just an alternate spelling for G-R-A-Y to support the UK. Uh, so... But yeah, I was just really pleased to see that. It it was a small happiness that I'm just not usually afforded. Nice. So outside of the color constants, the one thing I liked about Unity from the color picker is they give you an option somewhere in the settings for Unity itself to turn off their default color picker and let you use the system color picker, which allows me to use... In macOS, you can override the system color picker with a third-party app, and I use an app called Hues, which is sadly no longer available. Um, it's something I've actually been copying the binary forward from one machine to the other for a while. <laughs> I've had it so long. Um, but it's just it's one universal color picker. It's almost exactly like the default Mac one with a couple extra features, mm-hmm. but it lets me create a palette and use it across multiple programs. So I can, you know, pick a palette based on something I find on the web, load that into Hues, be able to access it in Sketch or any website program I'm working on or in Unity or in FileMaker, things like that. So, Does it support it in Maya? Yep. Oh, nice. So one, one color palette everywhere. Neat. Um, yeah. So yeah, that was, that was my stuff. I, you know, I had to hunt for the console window when I had a uh, semantic error in my code because I was getting a compile bug and it was I couldn't find where the errors were appearing. Um, I, I eventually found it. 
Yeah. I'm not sure if it was just hiding behind the window or whether I had to invoke that window, but whatever. It's there. It's now in a tab, so I have easy access to it. Great. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, most of this is just kind of growing pains, getting into the environment, whatever like that. But it was just some neat stuff that I saw as I was doing it. Weird little things. Yeah. So that's been my fun. What have you been doing? Well, I have, I've written almost no code. That sounds horribly boring. Not quite. I've spent almost all of my time the last two weeks working with 3d models in some form or another. Um, so I will, I'll try to take you on a journey of where I, what I've been doing. So in the prototyping stage, you know, a couple of weeks ago after the podcast, I got to the point where I needed to start really laying out a scene before I could go any further. So up, the, up until that point, I'd been using one of the default scenes that came with Google VR API or SDK and you know, I need to dump that, make my own scene. I'm making an indoor environment kind of based off an, an imaginary apartment. So I need to start making floors and a wall and some basic furniture and, you know, a couple of different rooms and stuff like that. So I started with blocking some of it out, really, really basic, just using some cubes and stuff like that. And that got me almost nowhere. Like being able to put the VR headset on and just see a bunch of cubes that are roughly shaped and sized the way that I want just didn't do anything at all for me. It's handy from an editor perspective of like getting a sense of scale, but other than that, it was almost entirely useless. The one thing that was helpful in that phase was um, importing the starter assets that Unity comes with and importing the character pack. There is a third-person character named Ethan, and I was able to size him about the same size as me, so I can at least get a sense of scale. Like, if I'm standing next to this object, how big is it going to be? And so I just move that thing around, that that character around the scene <laughs> as I'm working. Okay. So that's kind of helpful. Um, so at that point, I went to the asset store. You know, last time we talked, we t- we talked a lot about you know, the pros and cons of using assets either for the for actual deliverables in a project or just during the prototyping phase. I still am very much wrestling with that. But I decided to go ahead and pick up a couple asset packs, some low poly stuff that could work in the project, some of it not so much. And I spent a day or two just laying out a scene um basically laying out the apartment in unity and i started that process by you know i didn't really have a clear vision of what i wanted the place to look like and i you know it was kind of secondary to the game so i figured why reinvent the wheel when i've got the internet and i can just look at apartment floor plans so i spent half an hour just looking through google images until i found something that i liked found a couple that i liked and you know narrowed them down to one layout and use and basically just tried to make myself build that in unity and i got pretty far with that but the assets that i was using and the tools in unity for actually laying out a level are not as advanced as i had hoped and there was just a lot a lot of weird snapping you know 
where the pivot points are in these asset packs. I don't really have any control of that. Things like that. So I decided, you know, thinking back to the Space Marine game that you're working on, um, if you look at that environment, that entire environment was built as a scene in Blender or Maya and imported into Unity and made a prefab. So I was thinking, well, maybe I need to step out of Unity for a while and actually build things in Maya. So um, the first thing I did was try to get more familiar with Maya. I mentioned last time that Maya is the king of unmarked icons in their user interface. I even sent some feedback to Maya like, hey, this has a really high barrier to entry for someone new that's never done this type of workflow because all of your documentation says, click this button. I, I, you don't label any of your buttons. Mm. Yeah, that's miserable. Yeah. Um, so in order to get over that initial round of frustration, I found a course on Udemy, a short two-hour course called Maya 2017 Quick Start. Um, and went over that. And it was basically just building a low-poly scene in Maya, no specific outcome, wasn't tied to Unity or anything. It was just, we're, we're using this tool to do some very basic things. And we'll show you some of the common tools that you'll use, get you familiar with the Maya interface, the, you know, the general workflow. Um, and just that short course was enough to take me from, you know, kind of frustrated with the tool to, oh, okay, this is actually a lot of fun. Let me spend more time doodling. And... I think I did that course on a Friday and Saturday, and I spent most of that weekend just making stuff in Maya. Even just like, here's a banana. It took me an hour to make a banana. I'm never going to use this banana, but I made a banana. <laughs> Things like that. <clears throat> but you could totally use the banana. I could. I mean, I there's like half a dozen games in your head right now yeah. about what you could do with that banana. Yep. Yeah. Um. So yeah, there's still a lot of uh, there's still almost everything there is to know about Maya is still stuff I have to learn. Like I know so little about it, but there is some really neat stuff with that I found along the way of how to get Maya and Unity to work together. And essentially, if I want to, which I'm not sure if I do want to or if I'm going to, but if I want to, I can do all of my basically my level design, the visual aspect of my level design in Maya and import that into Unity. And I can do that. I can make changes in Maya and have those show up in Unity through an export. And even to the point where it, it's it's actually pretty neat. Um, if you set up the Maya project correctly in a certain way, which I'll come back to in a minute, and then there's a feature called Send to Unity, you select a project with that, you select a Unity binary that you're working with, on your computer and then you can just push those changes from one to the other and say I made a a table in Maya and then I added a collider to it in Unity and then added, you know, attach a script to it and maybe change the material stuff like that all in Unity that I want to go back to Maya and change the thickness of the table legs. I can push that change across without losing any of my components on the Unity side. So basically, I'm still working with the prefab, 
the mesh is only one part of that prefab, and Unity is just switching it out for the new one that's coming from Maya and not affecting the rest of the prefab. That workflow itself is just awesome. Like being able to make pretty drastic changes to stuff without having to redo a bunch of work, having to add a bunch of components or reattach scripts and things like that. I think I get what you're saying. Yeah. Um, but I got to the point pretty quickly where, you know, it takes me an hour to make a banana. Um, <laughs> I, this is going to okay, take me a lot of time. Dude, that's, that's the title. It's got to be the... <laughs> an hour to make a banana. <laughs> <laughs> Only God can make a tree, but Joe can make a banana in an hour. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, nice. proceed. <laughs> Jotting it down. Yep. So if it takes me an hour to make a banana, then it's going to take me many hours to make all the things that I want for this for the scene. So I didn't do it right away. I went back to the asset pack and finished laying out the scene. And I may end up kind of kind of in between using the asset pack for a lot of the big stuff. Like the, the asset pack has really good walls, walls with windows, walls with doorways, all that type of stuff. Um, that are really easy to use, snap together well, have pivot points that work together well. Um, so I may end up using that type of stuff from the asset packs that I got, and even some of the you know, larger staticky type objects like the kitchen counters and stuff like that. I may use from this low poly asset packs. A lot of the other stuff that I want to be a certain kind of aesthetic, I may do myself in Maya along the same style with the low poly assets that I got, but the the particular pack I got is very stylized, chunky type of environment. Like, you know, the the desk is if if this desk was the size of my desk in real life, which is thirty inches by sixty, then it would like the slab of wood that I have is half an inch thick. Their slab of wood would be like nine inches thick. Like everything is just super chunky and cartoony looking. Like not crazy about that aesthetic. So it's basically a uh, a Minecraft desk. Not quite that bad, but okay. Just really big chunky stuff. Okay. So those types of things I'm going to replace on my own. I think the I I went through all of the couches in these two packs that I'm using. And the best one is still an abomination. <laughs> you you could make a better couch in Minecraft than you could with this thing. It's just oh, terrible. Yeah, it's really quite bad. Um, but yeah, there's just a ton to learn about Maya. Um, I'm increasingly glad I didn't keep trying to go down the rabbit hole with Blender. <laughs> it's just... After I got over over those initial frustrations and not knowing what the buttons are called and things like that, it's it's become a pretty neat tool to work in. I'm still struggling with how UVs work. I just I know <clears throat> I I understand the concept. I understand how they work. I can even watch a video of somebody else doing it, and then I always tend to mess it up. I'm like so, what did I just do here? I just literally did the exact same stuff you did with the same version of the software and mine is on fire. What did I do wrong? I got the same experience when I was trying to follow the instructions for how to set up a physics joint to make the head of the space Marine a bobblehead. Okay. 
by the end of that process, I'm like, okay, I'm just following instructions. I don't, yeah. I mean, I, I understand what a joint is and how a joint works, but I got really lost by the things I was doing to the interface. There's like, okay, so I'm going to do that and that and that, right? No, no, that's not what they're about to tell me to do. It's a springy joint, but you don't turn on the spring checkbox. Oh, okay. Wait, how? <laughs> how does this thing really work? I don't, I don't fully understand here. Yeah. Um, like I, I get spring. I, I get uh, the kind of joint all about it, but yeah, I don't fully understand what's going on there. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of weird stuff. UVs just texturing or adding materials to my objects in Maya itself. Like adding basic flat materials is really easy. Adding more complex stuff. Um, I understand the basic workflow of like make model the object that I want to make and then make a UV out of that export that UV as a texture, put that into Photoshop or GIMP or something else, style that the way that I want, put that back in Maya, create a material for it, add the texture to the material, and apply that to the object. I understand the workflow intellectually. I can't make it go. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So yeah, it does, it, I do feel like I'm, I've been on a 35-year-old streak of never giving Adobe any money. Like, I've never paid for Photoshop. I've never paid for any of their products. I've never used Photoshop. Um, I've always found a way to, hey, so-and-so, can you change this icon for me? Or use Sketch or GIMP or anything else. But it seems like I'm finally going to have to start giving Adobe some money if I want to do this type of work. So, you know, losing the end of my streak there. Can you get there with something like Pixelmator? Maybe. I haven't looked. Um, yeah, I'll have to add that to my list of things to check. Or on the flip side, check out something like um, oh, one, of the, one of the really high-end drawing packages on the iPad and play with a pencil. Yeah. Not that either of us are necessarily enough of an artist to be hand-drawing our textures. I don't. I don't have an iPad Pro right now, anyway. Well, there's that. Finger paints. Yeah. But yeah, it's a. Uh, I'll have to look into Pixelmator. It's funny when I was listening to a very old talk show episode about that, and they. It was John Gruber pronounced it Pixelmator, mm-hmm. and it's always it's always stuck with me. Like he jokingly said that, but it's like you never you don't know you don't know how they pronounce their product. It could be Pixelmator. Yeah. <clears throat> nope. Yeah. Um, we've played, I mean, I've done work with professional photo editing from a workflow perspective, not from a, I'm an artist perspective mm-hmm. and Pixelmator and Acorn are both worth a look. They've got a lot of features. They might be missing one or two that you decide that you end up needing. But the other thing is, in the short term, you can just buy them. Yeah. For like With 50 the, bucks. I don't need to do any high quality photo work. I just need to add little blobs of colors and textures to these UV texture maps. Mm-hmm. So I need to take, like, if I was making a cube, it would spit out an inverted T with six blocks on it. And mm-hmm. I would need to add 
whatever I want into those six sides of the cube. Um, yeah. So it seems pretty basic. The only reason I was thinking Photoshop is that's what all of the coursework that I've seen. Sure. There's, you know, there's even a couple of courses on Udemy of how to make 3D assets for Unity with Maya and Photoshop and mm-hmm. Mudbox and 3D Max and stuff like that. Like, those are a lot of words. Yes. Uh, I have to learn all of these. Particularly, you do have to pay 30 bucks a month for all of these. So, yeah. yeah. One thing that's it's definitely really weird. I, I read an article explaining why this makes sense. And the author of that article was also like, I'm going to say why this allegedly makes sense, but it really doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but in order to get... So Unity uses units for how big everything is. So, mm-hmm. you know, you add a, a cube to a scene, it is one unit by one unit. And that is essentially one meter. Mm-hmm. If you want it to be. I think there's somewhere in project settings where you can change that. Same thing with Unreal Engine. Maya is a bit more abstract. A unit is a unit. If you want a <laughs> unit to be something, you got to tell us what you want it to be. By default, they're going to use centimeters, but it could be millimeters, it could be meters, it could be kilometers. Hence my you know, 80-foot or 200-foot cat a couple weeks ago. Um, and the other 3D software is all the same. So making a new scene, this is one thing that really bugged me about Maya, making a new project in Maya a project is basically just an empty shell for all of your scenes and there really aren't the project settings don't really get saved with the project they get saved on a per scene basis so i make a new scene and for that scene i have to open this, the project settings and set how, what i want the units to be and i set if i'm working with unity i open maya make a new scene set the units to meters and then i build out all of my stuff there's no visual cue in the interface that you're now working in meters. I just have to do that and not forget that. And then, this is the really weird part. Remember, I'm working in meters with the assets in Maya. Unity works with meters in Unity. In order to get my meter size units from Maya into Unity, when I export from Maya, I have to export in centimeters. <laughs> 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 yep <clears throat> that's a thing okay and if i don't then everything is a hundred times bigger than it needs to be <laughs> but, my, you know it. my favorite interface for that particular issue ever is still omnigraffle okay and omnigraffle is a diagramming tool for doing org charts and and things like that. But one of the other things you can do is things like floor layouts. And in the preferences for the settings for the document, you can tell it how big an inch is in some other units of measure. So I can say one inch equals three feet. And from that point on, all of the size things the width and height and position from the left and all of that stuff is now expressed entirely in feet and when i draw a one inch by one inch box it says it is three feet by three feet that's just i set the size and everything is now in that size it's like there never were inches um it ended up making it fantastic for laying out furniture in a room 
where I wanted to be able to like rotate the couch and move things around when it was a physical object in a physical room because I couldn't just resize the couch. There was yeah. no way to make the couch six inches shorter. It had to go this way. And so I could very easily see, okay, well, you know, when I lay out the room this way, there is now this much space and I could just draw a little line and go, that line is 12 feet long. There is plenty of space between my couch and my television. Proceed. Um, it was just, it was really nice working with a package that when I said, this is the answer, it went absolutely and never questioned me further about it. <laughs> nice. And now I'm laughing over exporting centimeters again. God. Yeah. It's a weird one. <sighs> so the other thing, there needs to almost be like a, a, I only care about Maya at all for integrating with unity. Yeah. Set up this connection and make it never fail. This is what I need. Yeah. There's probably a script somewhere I can find to do that. The neat thing about Maya is it's got an entire backend scripting language called Mel, M-E-L. And I think you can actually do some Python scripting with Maya as well. Um, I've stayed away from this stuff right now because it's just a rabbit hole of that would I don't need to be doing that right now. Yeah. I could I could spend the next six months making the perfect workflow to make my banana. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's it's not gonna get me anywhere. In you know, in six months or a year when I've got a lot more experience with it, then I'll be able to that would be a good time for me to optimize what I'm doing. But at this point, me trying to play with those tools is a really bad idea. I concur. So last time we talked, I mentioned the character asset that I bought, the character asset pack that I bought. Um, one of the reasons I considered it was because it was from an independent artist and I might be able to get the UV maps or the textures I wanted. And I reached out to him the next day after we talked and said, hey, you know, I bought this pack. I really like it. I'd like to make my own versions of these things. Could you send me the textures? I can, you know pay whatever you need for them and he just sent them to me within 10 minutes like hey here you go here's a dropbox folder with the textures that you need wow nice yeah i thought that was pretty cool so i'll be able to make my own kind of color and texture version of those which is why i need photoshop or something to edit (laughs) that in um yeah that's pretty much it for the visual stuff it you know doesn't sound nearly as cool as writing code but it's been fun um i spent the last part the latter part of last week finishing up the prototyping getting the general size of the environment that i want laying out the entire thing with assets from the asset store um i guess the only other thing i have to say on that is i tried a couple i think i bought six asset packs in all the last couple of weeks Two of them I see myself using a lot over a, you know just a series of different projects, whether that's just for prototyping or more than that. Some of the other ones, um, if I ever do any ArcViz stuff for anybody as like maybe consulting projects, some of these packs would be perfect for that type of stuff. There's one that has a a low poly aesthetic, but with really clean realistic textures which gives it a really kind of 
I don't know, just a really cool look. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it ran terribly in Daydream, so I'm <laughs> not going to be using those. But just like if you were modeling a room for somebody, this would be a really cool way to do it because it could make it really obvious that this is a computer simulation, but it also looks really cool. You're not going for the super photorealism, you know, with mm-hmm. tens of millions of, of polygons. Um, so you can still make, you know, simple shapes, but with really neat looking textures and materials. Did you ever yeah. take a look at balsamic mock-ups? That's exactly why I was thinking of this. Like, <laughs> I forget how you phrased it when you showed it to that, but basically it made it clear when you were showing somebody a mock-up that this isn't a mock-up, this isn't a finished product, and it gets their mind off of thinking about the finished product, and it, it helps you work on the points that you're working on. Yeah, balsamic mock-ups is a uh, UI wireframing tool that um, uses a visual style. And it's been done a bunch of places now. This is one of the first places that I saw it. But there, um, it, the visual style that it uses kind of looks like Sharpie lines on a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. So it looks like things that were kind of scribbled, maybe a little bit of shading or something like that. Um, and it really did a good job of saying, this is where I would like this stuff to go. But we used to use the tool for prototyping, like, you know, whipping up something in Xcode to go, well, here's where the list view is. And then you click on an item and it goes here. It's not all that hard to do with some of the modern transitions or the, the segues and things like that. It's not that rough to actually whip up something like that. But with that pixel precision, when the users were looking at it, they would get really caught up in, Oh wait, I don't like this color. Oh gosh, I'd like this to be a couple of pixels wider. And we were so not at that point of the process. Yeah. <laughs> we're like, how many screens should we have? Can we do this with two or do we need three? That's the question we're dealing with right now. And so being able to do sufficient resolution prototyping was really helpful. And so, yeah. yeah. Anyway. So yeah, when I I made a version of the apartment with that asset pack and all the other versions, I think I've done like six different versions of the scene because I'm that guy. Um, mm-hmm. They were all they were all holding sixty frames a second, but when I used that asset pack in particular, I was getting like twenty. Like wow, that's this is not going to work. Is that twenty on the device or twenty on your computer? On the device. Okay. Yeah, I haven't even bothered paying any attention to the frame rates on the computer because this app is never going to run on the computer. Gotcha. So yeah, um, so I've I think I'm at the point now with the project where I've done all the prototyping that I'm going to do, and and I've kind of answered the questions that I wanted the prototyping phase to answer for me. Um, so at this point. Despite the fact that I've got an ever-decreasing number of days to work, I am going to do the possibly irrational thing of take a break before I work any further on it. So I'm going to set the the entire project aside, maybe for the entire week, but at least for the next couple of days, um, and just focus on, one, clearing my head 
of everything that I've learned so far and everything I've done so far, kind of review what I've done and see what I could be doing differently to get caught up on a bunch of other projects. Um, whenever I really throw myself into something, I like to have as many of everything else finished 100% entirely. So I spent the last three days finishing a bunch of books, finished, uh, finished watching Doctor Who, finished playing a game, all that types of stuff. Like, let me get all of these other things off of my mind. Like these things that are just constantly in the background, like, Hey, I could be good. I could go do this thing. Like, well, I just finished that thing. That's no longer on the table. Um, so I've got a bunch of those. Some of those are some more unity books to read some more Maya courses to take some more my examples to work through some daydream things to to make uh, code labs and things like that but really i think i'm just going to take the entire week to focus on that stuff and kind of clear everything else on my plate so i can spend kind of like i did last year with random arrow spend a month or more just doing one project and kind of have all of my other affairs organized. I don't have any consulting projects going on right now. Um, you know, a little bit of maintenance work, but other than that, I can work on the project full-time pretty much to the end of the year. Hopefully it won't take that long. But yeah, I'm one of those weirdos who likes to pre-make decisions and automate as much of my life as possible, so I'll be spending the week Deciding what I'm going to eat for the next six weeks. <laughs> Things like that. So yeah, one, so I'm going to try to finish up a bunch of books and courses this week. And then the kind of the mental transition will happen when I go to GDEX. Of like, I'm kind of considering that my, my personal graduation from a summer of learning about stuff to, okay, as of Saturday, I'm a full-time this thing. And I have to act like it and uh, make stuff. GDEX, yeah. Joe? What's GDEX? GDEX is the Game Developer Expo in Columbus, Ohio, where we live. And uh, I have never been to it. We have I've heard about it from attending COG, the Central Ohio Game Dev Group, which is the meetup that we go to every month. And the people who sponsor and are involved with the meetup also run the conference um it sounds like a pretty big deal like i've seen you know i've been following more and more people on twitter and the game dev community and vr communities and i've seen more of those complete strangers that aren't from columbus tweeting about gdex this week like well this is going to be neat um so yeah it looks like a pretty big deal like they've got a pretty big portion of the convention center a nice schedule. I'm just going on Saturday. I didn't get the whole weekend pass. I just figured I would go on Saturday. I can handle about one day of being around humans. Um, any more than that, I might go insane. So yeah, I'm going to go to that and uh, see what I can learn, talk to some other developers, just be around other nerds, and then uh, come back, take a day off, and then kind of start making a product full-time until it's done. Very cool. I've got a wedding this weekend, which I, I would say, unfortunately means I can't go to GDAX, but I'm really looking forward to the wedding, but, nice. but it's, I'm still going to miss GDAX. Yeah. So maybe next year for that one. 
Yeah. Yeah. Should be fun. So that's our show for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at VRHermit underscore Dave. And I'm at VRHermit underscore Joe. Uh, we also have a website, VRHermits.com. If you could, like us on iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or your podcast player of choice. 